Hi, I'm Mark Ramsey, Executive Director of the Ministry Collaborative. And I'm Jennifer Watley-Maxell, the Program Curator for the Ministry Collaborative. Obviously, we are living in a time of seismic shifts. And these podcasts are often recorded ahead of time. These recordings took place before the most recent painful and poignant examples of racial injustice in our society. The Ministry Collaborative seeks to promote and nurture deep and searching conversations about God's activity in the world and our place in it. And so with all that, we commend this podcast to you. Welcome to the Ministry Collaborative podcast, a series of honest conversations about opportunities, challenges, and joy in ministry today. I'm Adam Mixon, content curator. I'm Adam Borneman, program director. I'm Jennifer Maxell, program curator. And I'm Mark Ramsey, executive director of the Ministry Collaborative. A project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation, the Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities. Every day, we are inspired by ministry leaders from across the country who are exploring possibilities, learning from broad perspectives, taking risks, and who are eager to join candid discussions that generate disruptive creativity. Hi, I'm Mark Ramsey with the Ministry Collaborative of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation. Really excited today to be talking to my friend and colleague, Derek Star Redwine. Derek, hello. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. So you uh, have been a pastor for about 20 years. Yep. You last served a church in Cleveland with a lot of, I think, energy and imagination. And then you supported your family and your wife, Amy, as she took a new call in Richmond, Virginia. And you had sort of an unplanned year's hiatus from active parish ministry. And you've just taken over as a transitional pastor of a church in Richmond. What did you learn in the in-between time? A lot about myself, but I think what I could share here is that affirmation in ministry is satisfying in the moment, but entirely unhelpful in leadership. The praise you get for a good sermon or the affirmation you get after a funeral, while it feels good, it does not really equip you to do the work of leadership, because if you start doing things to get that praise and attention and affirmation, you're not really leading, you're more uh, meeting your own needs, which is not what the job's about. So I just came to terms with, you know, going from being well-loved to being in forced isolation <laughs> in a sense <laughs> that I wasn't getting those strokes. And it was like, okay, what am I about? Who am I? What's important to me? And I'm thankful for that time because now I feel like I'm doing ministry in a different way. Hmm. What's different? I care less about what people think about me and the work I'm doing. And not that I don't care about them, but I, I'm doing things less out of the hope that they will lead to some kind of silent or spoken praise. And I'm trying really hard to discern what it is I need to say and do to help that church, that group move forward into the future that is, the God's already actively building, but we tend to resist. So more leadership, less connection, which sounds counterintuitive. That's a tricky balance though, caring for people, but not being, you know, bandied about by every wind of popular opinion. Yeah, and just the more the more I talk to young pastors, I'm always amazed how surprised they are by conflict or tension in a system. And uh, a wise person once told me that a conflict in a system is a sign that you are leading and you're actually doing something right. So I think I finally accepted that truth and I'm kind of excited to live into it a little bit. I think you are one of the more imaginative pastors uh, who's working in church right now. What fuels your imagination? The anxiety people are feeling right now, the uncertainty people are expressing right now, 
you know, we're talking about things I've wanted to talk about for 20 years that we couldn't talk about. Worship as a fundamental piece of church life, faith formation outside of Sunday morning, you know, the questions of what is essential in church life are finally being asked because we have to. And so I'd, I'll be honest, I'm thrilled to be back in a church um, in this uncertain time. I just find uncertainty to be an incredibly um, invigorating and inspiring and stirring of my imagination. So uh, yeah, just all the questions. I just find if people are willing to ask them, I think there's a lot of opportunity here to really do something new together. What's your view of what makes a church healthy? Oh, wow. Uh, I've told a story before in sermons, and it's somewhat received well, but I wish that once a year, God would mail all of us a t-shirt that on the front said, hi, my name is blank. I'm dealing with, and then on the back, it listed the things we're dealing with, and we had to wear it to church once a year. And I, I wish that would happen in part because um, we're all dealing with the same stuff, the same five or six things. And I, I think a healthy church is aware of that. And then that frees them up to be a place where they can do the creative, imaginative work of ministry because they're not trying to pretend like they aren't struggling with pick your issue. Uh, they're all in this together. They're actually more alike than they realize. I don't like the word authentic. I think it's overused, but I, I would say open, maybe honest about who they are and what they're not and what they're good at and what they're not and what they're struggling with and where the opportunities before them lie. So honesty, perhaps. We're taping this in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis. What do you think, what shifts do you see happening? And do you have any sense of what shifts are permanent and which are temporary? Oh, well, the shift that I see happening that I hope is permanent is the idea that corporate worship is central to church life. I love worship. I grew up in the church, so it's part of who I am. But I've long been skeptical that gathering together for an hour a week, singing old hymns and kind of marching through a liturgy really equips people for the life of faith or serves the world. I just don't know what efficacy is left or how much is there in corporate worship. So I'm kind of excited for this opportunity to not be so focused on worship and to be focused on other things. And I hope that change is permanent. Probably not. But that I, I just don't know if corporate worship should be the center of who we are. I'm sure my theology professor and, and worship professor at Princeton right now are upset, but oh well. <laughs> they aren't the first. I think a more permanent thing perhaps is the changing roles of clergy and staff within a church context. I think we've served the building and the systems and the structures so much in our staffing models that if the building and the structures and the systems become less stable and less permanent and less certain, I think we have to staff in a way that's more flexible and adaptive. And most churches are so top-heavy with staffing and so consumed with programs that I think that that is going to be a change, that how we staff churches is going to look really different. Hopefully it brings about some change in the call process too, but that's a big fish to fry. You, you mentioned a couple of times, serve the world. Yep. How do congregations serve the world? I think they have to actually be looking at it. You know, it's just amazing to me how much more anxiety there typically is about things happening in the church, well, ex well, say expressed anxiety about things happening in the church, than there is expressed anxiety about things happening in the world. Like if we had the same energy about hunger and poverty as we do about the color of the carpet and the hymn book, I think there should be some hope there. I think we've got to make choices in ministry, and I think one of the choices we make is where we put energy and attention. Yeah. And it's going to go somewhere, and... I'm always interested in looking at churches going, where's your default setting? Yeah. Is yeah. it out or in? 
Yeah. Now, not saying that you neglect the other, but there has to be a default place. I would say that if you aren't looking out, you're on hospice. And in this time, when the, outside the walls of the church, things are really struggling and there's a lot of opportunity to do good work, if you're not engaging now, if you're not seeking that out now, you're only accelerating the process of your death. There's so little internal church stuff right now holding us together because we aren't meeting, we're not gathering, that I think that our identity in the community is our place of strength. We, the church I'm serving now does a blood drive, and they're going to keep doing it. They're hosting it for two days in a couple of weeks, and the Red Cross is coming in and all that. It's a great spot for it. It's in a really dense community. And the energy in those emails about that activity and the positiveness and the hopefulness and the pride far outsurpassed any other email I've got in that system about what they're doing because they know it's serving people and it's doing a good thing. And it's not complicated, but they had to open the building up, but they're aware of it. We got to start looking outward. I just, this navel gazing, my favorite word is skepsis, and it's the contemplation of one's navel. And I think the church has been doing skepsis for so long and it's just, it's pointless. It doesn't do any good. And it's so boring. God, it's so boring. Um, mm. For me, anyway. Yeah. How do you learn best? Relationships, talking to people, listening to people, bouncing ideas off folks. Um, I talk to a lot of different colleagues of different perspectives around the country and in this community and just kind of beg, borrow, and steal things that I find interesting and stuff I don't. I kind of wrestle with why. And uh, but yeah, relationships. And that's what's great about right now. Is you can be connected without being in a community. You can be connected. Yeah. So. And then the corollary to that is, uh, how do you think congregations learn best? You've mentioned formation. How does that happen best in your view? Or what risks should we be taking that we're not taking so the congregations learn more and are formed more completely? Well, I wrote down in my notes that I think we should shrink our audience and feed the hungry. And I mean that in terms of internally. I think the risk we have to take, and we've talked about this before, is stop trying to cast such a wide net and start talking to those who are actually interested in the endeavor and focus on feeding those that are actually hungry and not those that are already full. So, yeah, I think that's a good place to start is to sharpen and focus our audience. We spend so much time trying to make everybody happy in a church, and I think now more than ever, that's going to lead to nothing um, because the needs are too great and the uncertainty is too high and the ground is destabilized beneath our feet, which is kind of cool. Shifting gears a little bit, what brings you joy in ministry? When a group of people can just feel it in the room, when they finally feel the permission to ask a question they've never thought they could ask before, and then one person asks it, and you watch the whole room turn, usually except for one person who fights, but most of the room turns, and you see them going, oh, we don't have to do it that way. We don't have to think that way. We don't have to operate that way. And even folks that are reluctant, gosh, when you see people let go of the things they hold so tightly to and just trust, it's so inspiring to see that happen on a group level. Individually, that happens all the time. But for a group to actually trust the choices they are making and the risks they're taking and not be consumed about the response of a minority it's so exciting for me. And that's, I, mean, I think when churches lead, I get excited. Mm. When churches manage, I just, I mean, I can do that work because I've been doing it for 20 years, but it's not a lot of fun. It's just what it is. But when they lead and they trust themselves and they take a risk, it's just so much fun to watch people live into that. And what gives yeah. you joy in your own Christian faith? Um, right now, meditation, 
quiet spaces. I'm a talker. So less, the less I talk, the more joy I typically feel in my own private life. Um, yeah, but I think just kind of trusting that God's at work in the world and it's not about me. And uh, I find deep joy that I think God is the one behind all that's going on. And uh, it's kind of a privilege to have a front row seat to watch. And so, yeah, I get a lot of joy from that, being curious. How do you deal with people who say, if God's behind all this, what in the world is God thinking? Where did we get the idea that God is here to meet our individual needs? And where did we get the idea that a life in faith is supposed to be calm and peaceful and serene and clear? I'm just so intrigued. Yeah, I guess I would ask them, where does that come from for you? What expectations do you have? Uh, you know, pick up your cross and follow me doesn't sound like a beach vacation. It sounds like, <laughs> I guess I don't care as much about that question as I used to. I feel like you have to come to that place where you realize it's all about radical trust on your own. I can't make you come to a place where you realize you have absolutely no control and you have to let go and trust. But once you get there, and we all get there and move away, I think, but gosh, if you can sit in that for a few minutes, that's where the joy is. That's where the excitement is. That's where the creativity is. Because you're not, it's not on you. You're just participating in something that's already happening, which is so much more fun and freeing than trying to make it all about you. And pastors and church leaders love to make it all about us because we're working out our own salvation, I guess, but crazy. How are you navigating, I guess, both in your own situation, but also now in the congregation you're leading, the grief that is evident both in personal lives as the pain of all this crisis comes home, as well as the grief of disruption and all that, and hope. That's been a tough thing for most congregations to find a way to attend to the grief, but not stay there. Yeah, it's interesting you say, I think our churches are better with hope than they are grief. They're better with expressing a positive view of the future than they are lamenting. The context I'm in now, I don't think they've fully articulated the grief. But yeah, I think that's, yeah, I don't know. Grief work can be a trap too. You can get sucked into this victim thing, which is necessary sometimes because sometimes we are victims. We need to name that and ask for help and be empowered. Yeah, I don't see our privileged congregations, which most mainline churches are, in my context anyway, from my experience, as being having a lot of suffering, They're, they have a lot of loss, but it was never theirs in the first place. I'm becoming less patient with, I'm really sad about this when I hear about 14% unemployment and probably 20% unemployment coming. And I just, I don't know. I just feel like we're, part of that is we just kind of get caught in our own truth bubbles and we don't see outside of it. Um, but yeah, you have to attend to the grief, but I think we can get stuck there too. You know, the Stockdale paradox is something I think about a lot. You know, be present to the moment, be realistic with where you are, but but don't lose sight that things can get better. Stockdale paradox being James Stockdale when he was a yep. POW in Vietnam. Yeah. Just say a little bit more about that. Well, I probably forgot the exact terms, but I, I believe he was in a you know, POW camp and all these guys who had false hope were kind of think Christmas was coming, we're going to get out by Christmas and it would come and they would suffer and get sad. And then Easter would come and they thought we'd be out by Easter and that they had these false expectations, false hopes, but the folks who never stopped believing they would get out Gosh, it's like the COVID crisis. They, they knew eventually it'd be over, but if they weren't radically present to where they are and being honest about their situation, they got depressed and sad and oftentimes didn't make it. Churches need to be radically honest about where they are and have hope, but radical honesty requires the willingness to say, that's not working, that's working, that's stupid, that's good, that's giving life, this is not. And I think that goes back to the honesty point. 
that's the challenge for a healthy system is to just be honest. I've been declining in attendance for 30 years with corporate worship being the centerpiece of our model. And we've been given the opportunity to not focus on corporate worship. What a gift! It hasn't worked for 30 years, and yet we want to go back to it as fast as possible. Why? So we can keep declining? But to say that to a session is really hard because they feel comfortable and they get fed, but it doesn't work. It hasn't worked for a long time. So I'm sorry. That's the uh, rant over. I feel better. Thank you. <laughs> that's why we do these podcasts. Yes. Well, of course. It is all about you. Yeah. What scriptures mean the most to you right now? Oh, I keep coming back at Jeremiah 29, seek the welfare of the city you find yourselves in. Uh, you know, the exiles wanted to go back home and God's like, nope. Um, this is where you are. Be present and don't think about your needs. Think about the needs of those around you. Interact with those around you. Hey, marry those around you if you have to, but be present. And I, I just think for the church right now, that feels like it's an exile. The words from Jeremiah that are tough, but I think um, are really helpful right now. Seek the welfare of the city I have placed you. Hmm. Localize your context as much as possible and see what the needs are there. What is going too fast that needs to slow down? And what is going too slow that needs to speed up? I think we're moving way too fast through the crisis. I think we should slow down and let ourselves be present in this moment and make sure we're learning the lessons we need to learn and not hurry back so quick to the way things were. Not only for, we could have a debate about the safety and the health of all that, but I just think also we're, this is a gift and we need to sit in it for a while. That needs to slow down. Ugh. What's going too slow? I think what's going too slow is people's willingness to say, no, stop. That's a ridiculous argument. Stop being negative. Just calling out bad behavior and systems, not giving the squeaky wheel to grease. We're not going to make everybody happy, especially now. And I think we just, right now more than ever, I see people trying to make so-and-so happy when it's not possible. So I wish our willingness to lead and know that leadership involves turning some people off I wish that the learning about that was going faster. But, when oh. I was a parish pastor, I wanted to wear a T-shirt that said, I'm an equal opportunity disappointer. Yes. Uh, as a way of saying, I'll spread it as evenly as I yeah. can. But yeah, it's not there. Uh, what are you reading? What are you listening to? What are you watching or streaming that is making some impact on you right now? Well, two shows I'm watching that are actually going to sound bizarre, but they're really helping. Stranger Things, I feel like we're living in the upside down. And the church has been living in the upside down for probably 30 years. And it looks like real life, but it's not. And I love this idea of trying to break into the upside down and pull people out. And, oh my gosh, this is what life looks like. And then I'm watching, this is terrible, but I'm watching Shit's Creek. It makes me laugh. But I love that it's these people of privilege, these wealthy folks who lose everything being placed in a rural community and having to live and interpret life there and make relationships there, which was like, and it's hilarious. It's funny. But there's these tender moments of like connection and naming privilege and kind of the idiocy of separation that we've created. It's a it's a great commentary, I think, if you see the church as a family living in a hotel and having to come to terms with, they're, they're no longer special and the world will receive them, but it's not going to be easy all the time. So, I think we'll leave it right there. Derek, I deeply appreciate your friendship and your being such a great colleague and for the ministry that you give the church. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. Our producer is Marthame Sanders. To find out more about us and our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations and communities, visit our website at www.ministrycollaborative.org.